0: Welcome everybody. This is Community Control Now, new show with 106.5 FM forward radio. I'm your co-host Vincent Gonzalez. This is my esteemed colleague, Michael T. Say what's up to everybody on Radio Land.
1: Que pasa?
0: Yeah, and we're here trying to get this off the ground here. This is our pilot program here. I don't know uh, if we have to pass it on the network execs here. You know how these things go. Uh, with pilots, but we are uh, trying to get something off the ground. And, uh, you know, sometimes in pilots, people get uh, replaced. So uh, the, the role of Vincent Gonzalez might be played by someone else next <laughs> episode. We don't know yet. But, um, no, we're, we are seeking to uh, our main objective and what we hope to pass on through the furtherance of a FM program is the uh, advocacy of the community, control of the police, okay? I know that's a a pretty far out concept to some, and we hope to state our case as well as possible. And, uh, you know, maybe have some fun along the way. Uh, A pretty uh, heavy topic here. Uh, But uh, I would like to, uh, you know, just lay out kind of where we're coming from. And before that, uh, you know, uh, give you a little perspective of, you know what got us to this point from a, a personal standpoint we'll uh we'll touch on some of the history of everything later in the program but uh for now we were very much hoping to just kind of give uh give the people what they want so to speak here and that's uh you know a, a personal touch of things so once again my name is vincent gonzalez i am a near lifelong resident of our beautiful town of louisville kentucky you know, I, I say that with a great deal of pride. Um, grew up here and uh, since around the age of, I'd say about 16 or so, have had uh, an involvement in one way or another in social justice movements. At many times, uh, was introduced to many elements of uh, social justice, being a intermittent, I'll I'll be the first to admit that intermittent uh, board member of the Kentucky Alliance of Racist and Political Repression, among other uh, organizations I participated in during the uh, Mike Brown struggle, the uprising that came from that in Ferguson, Missouri, I was a part of and uh, helped collaborate with those who started the uh, Black Lives Matter Louisville chapter. So uh, I'm still a what I'll. Though I am not with uh, Black Lives Matter Louisville, I do uh, collaborate with some of those guys um, currently. Um, do some organizing work with the party for socialism and liberation, and uh, you know, just into some of their work with uh, anti-war, anti-imperialist movements. But that all comes back to center. You know what brings me here and my passion for uh, making sure that this beautiful town that I live in and um, the greatest society works towards uh, more benevolent and social justice-based policies. This is uh, my esteemed colleague Michael T. here. You know, dear friend of mine. Uh, I consider he's a, a mentor of mine. And I very much uh, feel like you have a, a very unique perspective. And uh, could you please tell the radio listeners here kind of what got you to this point and wanting to advocate for uh, what I would consider a a pretty uh, progressive to radical policy here, community control of the police.
1: Well, thank you very much. This all began for me as a member of the Philadelphia chapter of the Black Panther Party in 1971, and uh, I was a member until 1973 when the party uh, pretty much consolidated to the city of its origin uh, which for those who know our history oakland california and uh, being a high school student i couldn't relocate to oakland california at that point i think uh you know at that time i was going into lincoln university 72 uh, and I stayed with the party until...
0: Point of clarification, we're talking the, the Lincoln University in uh, Pennsylvania.
1: Pennsylvania, exactly. Right. Okay. Not that far from Philly. So, uh, you know, I maintained my membership, which is a very interesting period in my life as a young man. Uh, not unlike a lot of young black men of the period who joined the Panther Party, we were mostly a, a young party, even though there were a number of older people in there, but a lot of teenagers, a lot of college students. So I was introduced to the concept of um, community control of the police. Uh, Specifically, um, Bobby Seale put forth the notion and defined it as such, and I'm quoting him. We will have neighborhood divisions with neighborhood councils who are duly elected in the particular neighborhoods. The point of community control of the police is that those people living in those neighborhoods will actually do the hiring and firing of the patrolmen and women who patrol the area. Community control of the police is one of the most functional and most necessary programs to make all the other programs work.
0: So this was one of the things, as a young man in the uh Black Panther Party that uh, you know it intrigued you some somewhat uh, I guess because we could say galvanized you uh, to um, you know have a, a basis into a uh, you know progressive to radical uh, political perspective would you say that
1: yes because as you could imagine and anybody who has a just a uh, superficial understanding of African- American history the question of police repression, has always been an issue of the utmost importance. Uh, We know that even in the founding of the Black Panther Party, there was a survey taken of the people in Oakland as to what were the most important issues to them. Police repression was the number one thing among a bunch of other issues. The, the, the people in that community said, if you really want to help us, you'll do something about these police killing us and harassing us and locking us up. And as we know, that wasn't just a condition of people in Oakland. In Every city where black people are, we have this question. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, I really, uh, I, I, you know, just to see it as like from your perspective, you were, uh, like I said, these, these pretty radical and, and uh, very much police-centered uh, policies. You know, and, uh, the Black Panther Party, uh, um, you know, t- took up arms and, you know, went to the California uh, state capitol <laughs> and, uh, you know, things of that nature. You're, you're a young man of uh, 16, 17 years old. Um, you're seeing this, but uh, I am curious kind of what are some other uh, perspectives that you saw and then um, when... Uh, how long were you in that struggle in particular with the Black Panther Party?
1: Well, as I said, I was a member of the party from 1971 to 73 when uh, the party uh, contracted due to a lot of internal and external pressures. You know, we were attacked by the state, the federal state, uh, directly your
0: local, by. Your local
1: chapter. A, uh, well, local and national. Uh, the FBI uh, uh, intentionally. Uh, tried to suppress us. Uh, I mean, it's legendary the kind of lengths they went to to suppress the Black Panther Party as the vanguard of the Black Liberation Movement. So, at the time I came into the party, there was a lot of internal conflict going on. I mean, mistakes that we had made internally, and most importantly, attacks from the federal and local governments. And uh, so part of the regrouping was to keep the party going, but in a new way. And it was decided, after much debate and not an internal dissension, that all of the chapters would be dissolved and everything would be relocated to Oakland. The party didn't officially disband, though, as a Black Panther Party until 1982 but there were some transitional moves that were made uh, uh, Elaine Brown uh, took over the leadership in I think about 74 or 75 uh, in Oakland uh, and some of the work continued on um, some uh, we had a great school that, that came into being and some of the community so, programs continued
0: so did you um, so after leaving the Panther Party did you continue work or, or furtherance it with uh, political
1: struggles? Of course, of course. I mean, there were even uh, with the demise of the Panther Party, which as I said before was considered like the vanguard of not only the black liberation movement but the class struggle in the United States at that time. And uh, that's arguable, but uh, I think many people would say that because we were able to create a lot of great alliances among the left uh, that had not been um, realizable before we had a good base in the working class black community, and uh, we we inspired people internationally. Uh, there were panthers of some stripes created all over the world: the gray panthers, the red panthers, the white panthers, all over the world. Uh, we uh, were able to uh, you could, you inspire people.
0: Truly see this as, uh, and we've. Discuss this in uh, you know casual conversation. Uh, the closest, you know, in terms of just from a racial social justice standpoint, uh, the closest to a vanguard. And when we say vanguard, we're saying uh, a you know leading uh, sort of revolutionary party. The closest that we've seen in American history. You know, I think we're both in agreement that uh, you know. That was the Panther Party in its uh, genesis.
1: Yes, I would say so. I mean, they, now there were other revolutionary parties that were doing great work, but in terms of which parties attracted the greatest numbers of working class people and the most oppressed classes in the United States. We could say that the Black Panther Party was in the leadership of that. Even though we were an all-black party, we had great alliances with other oppressed people uh, locally, nationally, and internationally, Uh, something that has been yet to be reproduced. Um, Now, you know, to your previous question about, you know, moving on past the Panther Party after I left, uh, you know, like so many folks, I... uh, 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 when I dropped out of college, I continued on in local activism, working with groups like the then-October League, uh, the Revolutionary Communist Party, and other groups, local and national. Um, I moved around to various cities. Uh, what
0: were some of the things you guys did in these parties?
1: Uh, well, some of it was the continuation of, the, of a lot of the work that um, was we, uh, was being done in the uh, Black Panther Party. Um, of course, uh, many of these groups were integrated groups, uh, many of them uh, where we had black and whites and others um, pursuing a class struggle with, um, in most cases, an understanding of the struggle against white supremacy. And we had various levels of success, but you have to keep in mind that we're talking now like the mid to late 70s where there was a precipitous decline in the revolutionary movement. It's like all revolutionary movements, they flow and ebb. And we were in an ebbing stage in by the late 70s. Of course, 1980, Ronald Reagan came to power uh, as a figurehead of, a, of U.S. capitalism. And a lot of the struggles uh, declined. Uh, But with the resurgence of the anti-apartheid movement, which had begun some years before, uh, we were able to resuscitate a lot of uh, the revolutionary movement around that particular issue, which you could sort of look at as the struggle against white supremacy in South Africa, which many African Americans could see themselves in.
0: You are listening to Community Control Now with your co-hosts, Vincent Gonzalez and Michael T. We were uh, just discussing, uh, Michael T., you're uh, my esteemed colleague and co-host of this endeavor, Community Control Now. Uh, You were just discussing what got you to this point of seeking to uh, identify a uh, progressive to radical strategy of uh, community control, the police, uh, you know, giving them some of your background here, which I, I mean, I, I think is necessary, but also uh, I find it to be highly intriguing, which led to, you know, uh, getting getting you in this current struggle that we find ourselves in. Um, so you were talking before about the uh, anti-apartheid movement kind of uh, yes. galvanized the, uh, the social justice scene. Uh, this is around... Mid to late
1: '80s, is it? Well, that's when it was gaining steam, and by the 1980s, it was in full steam, uh, specifically around the campaign to free Nelson Mandela and all of the African National Congress comrades who had been in prison for years. And that movement had been, you know, being fought nas- internationally, for a long time. But it, it you know, it reached a, a fever pitch in the '80s. In spite of Reaganism and the rise of neoliberalism and the resurgence of the right wing, you know, that had been on the defensive, I'd say, since the 50s and the resurgence of the civil human rights movement that uh, had emerged from the 50s and uh, raged almost continuously until the 70s. So we're in the 80s now, and not only do we see the, the resurgence of social justice, specifically around the anti-apartheid movement, but there was also the period in which Jesse Jackson had two memorable presidential campaign runs for, um, for president. And between the anti-apartheid movement and Jesse Jackson's uh, political coalitions, we were able to bring together a lot of old activists and some new ones who had, were just emerging in the 80s. Uh, so that was a great development, even though Jesse Jackson did not win the presidency either time. And it wasn't until the end of the 80s, I believe... That, uh, or maybe the early 90s, and you can correct me if my history is a little bit off, that we were able to get uh, Nelson Mandela released from prison. But there were some real gains, as I said, just in the sense that a lot of old activists came back together. Which you
0: were a part of. Yes. You you, you kind of got the band back together. Yes. Uh, On a
1: higher level, too, in two ways that we, uh, unlike uh, some of the sectarianism and other types of political divisions that were so rampant in the earlier phase by the 80s, we were able to bring and to broaden the alliance yeah. of forces uh, around the anti-apartheid movement and Jesse Jackson's campaign.
0: The Rainbow Push Coalition.
1: Yes, you know, yes. And,
0: uh, he had, uh, as, as perhaps, I, um, very light analysis of that, uh, the argument could be made. As you said, uh, the Panther Party was, uh, you know, one of the closest to a social uh, revolutionary Reform uh, movement, a, a uh, concentrated movement. Uh, the argument could be made that uh, Jesse Jackson's campaign was the closest to a uh, a broad based coalition at that time. You know, he had he had gathered all these different groups. I want to say he won um, in the in the Democratic primary. He won a state. Or yes. Party,
1: you know. um, yes. He yes. A- he won a bunch of primaries actually. You know, um, and did better. In the second presidential run, I mean, if you recall, and I'm sure many of the listeners will recall, that he almost won the nomination. I mean, there was a, at some point, when it looked like he was getting close, there was an orchestrated attempt to uh, derail the campaign, you know, drawing on some mistakes he made. Um, But all of that was calculated to derail him. But on the positive side, it had brought together, in an unprecedented way, old activists brought in some new activists and um, and there were new issues developing like the anti-nuclear struggle uh, remember 1980 um, going to uh, Central Park and you know with thousands of others in uh, the uh, now famous anti-nuclear demonstration that some people I'm sure here probably recall um, and just as a little side i that's where i uh had opportunity to meet cicely tyson oh, right on. uh there was a big show in Central Park you know connected to the the demonstration uh James Taylor and um she
0: recently passed
1: third passed. world and cicely tyson was was jogging through Central Park. I don't know if she was there for the march or what probably was, but she was jogging and uh right close by us, and somebody noticed that it's now, cicely Tyson cicely, it was happening but uh, she's going on to you know the other side now but she was a, she was a great lady but that was a big moment um, but then um you know my my own struggles continued um, in other forms and in other contingents and formations in the 90s I will have to say that the, the 90s was a pretty low period uh, where in my lifetime uh, of of activism, which began in 1970-71 of there was by the nineties so much of uh, progressive activism had been co opted yeah. by the Democratic Party. I mean, people were even saying that you know uh, Bill Clinton was our new leader. Oh, <laughs> Especially yeah. after Tony Martin said he was our first <laughs> black president, that confused a whole lot of people. Yet this is the same guy. Yeah. Getting back to our question of police control community control who is responsible for the mass incarceration of our people along with our present president
0: so you do see so it sounds like it's, you see some parallels here from uh, you know kind of what got up, you know to this point um and where we currently stand yeah let's let's dive into it here As we understand it, I I would like to touch on just in this country, and we are unabashed in our uh, analysis of this country. It is founded on the the precepts of white supremacy in that, you know, uh, the original persons who could vote were uh, white males who owned property. Mm -hmm. So we are staying in that time of you know no remedy was ever (laughs) created to address that so we're kind of getting to uh policing as we know it uh i would like for you to just kind of lay out what you have as what got us to this point how are we with the the original um uh, I guess uh, the modern iteration of uh, policing, where did that start in this country?
1: Mm, good question. And uh, as so many of us on the left try to do, we try to take a dialectical materialist analysis, which sounds, sounds like a fancy word, fancy phrase, but it basically just means that we try to start with reality material, objective reality in a historical context and then look at the kinds of evolutions and changes and contradictions that emerge through that reality. And looking at it that way, we look at the purpose, first of all, of policing. And we're talking about uh, maintaining uh social safety because in class stratified societies you could say almost any societies there's a need for social safety maintaining the peace there are social conflicts that arise in any social formation and there has to be some type of entity that people aren't able to maintain that individually and collectively themselves there has to be some entity that does that
0: political Philosophers I want to say uh, Hobbes You know Very much You know When we talk about The social contract Yes Where the people uh, You know Maybe give up Some personal liberties And this is how It's uh, presented And it's one of the uh, Foundational uh, Shaping documents Of this country Uh, You know You give up A degree of uh, Personal freedoms As uh, the uh, You know The document goes in exchange for the safety and security that you could not uh, yourself provide.
1: Yeah, social collective security, but, which is uh, always a need.
0: But as we've, uh, you know, as we currently see, and um, we understand a degree of, uh, we're preaching to the choir here. If you're a full <laughs> radio listener, perhaps, uh, you know, you're, you're in on some things here that has uh, obviously not been the case. In, in so many ways. Um, so you said it's, it's about uh, social control, uh, but what is the, uh, I think you had a two-pronged analysis of that. Exactly. Beyond social control, exactly. what, what else are we talking about yes.
1: here? Well, when I, I raised that because, I mean, obviously now more than ever, because of all of the social conf- conflicts that class stratified and oppressive societies usher into existence, there has to be that first and foremost. But there's also, because of the same reasons of that class stratification, um, especially in a capitalistic system, uh, there's a need to protect commercial private property first and foremost, even beyond the social safety and even the social safety is determined by who owns the vital resources. So in the U.S., for instance, uh, the vital commercial property at the beginning of the establishment of the settler colony that became the United States was chattel slavery. So a policing apparatus emerged primarily to protect... That property, slaves were escaping you know, from enslavement.
0: Speaking of the slave patrols,
1: exactly. Uh,
0: you know, of that era. I want to say I remember seeing online how some of the uh, police badging that we see uh, modernly, um, the uh, the kind of the star, as we you know, if, if you're a fan of old westerns, you know, the star badge. <laughs> um, they they showed you know a historical. Uh, artifact of, you know, the slave patrol yes. in that same Um uh, So, uh, very much, these are um, bedfellows, and we see they, uh, you know, coexisted And to you know, the current modern ideation. We, uh, like I said, we, we cannot, in order to uh, move forward and have a, a progressive uh, lens towards uh, these things, we 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 have to uh, be honest about
1: that. Yeah, and uh, and unpack the contradictions because that's why I said as much as most people recognize the need for social safety, you can't understand the contradictions and the complexities of policing if you don't understand it in a historical co- um, context. Beyond the need for creating social safety and peace, has been the Economic need of the people who control the vital resources to have a policing force to preserve that and protect that. And as I said, with the advent of the police of the uh, slave patrols, they were trying, primarily trying to protect the ownership of people.
0: That's a- and that's a, cold, that's a cold piece when we talk here, the original property. And I, um, I say this, this is from my perspective of being uh, in the you know, uprising in town that we had. And uh, many people were, were distaste on the uh, loss of uh, business property uh, <laughs> down south, the breaking of windows. These things um, were troubling to them. And I just want to put out there, you are listening to Community Control Now with your co-host, Vincent Gonzalez. That's me. And uh, my esteemed colleague, Michael T. here. We are currently talking about the history of policing and uh, where that leads us to now. Uh, But many people, when we talk about that personal property piece, were very uh, incensed upon that. And, and, you know, it was a a losing point for um, many persons uh, in town.
1: But I you can see the cool. differences in how the police responded to the uprisings in the last last summer mm-hmm. and what their priorities were, mm-hmm. protecting commercial property. Okay, no longer chattel slaves, but yeah. these banks in the downtown area yeah. and why there was so much consternation around that versus the public property of the Capitol, for instance. Yeah. Look how light that security was. I mean, not that they don't have security, but look at the contrast between the heavy, heavy police prete- uh, presence to suppress the uprisings this past summer versus protecting the public property that's theoretically owned by all of us of the very capital itself. And the differences there, and that shows you uh, not only the racist aspect of it, but again reinforces how well, protecting and, private and, property and is so yeah. is primary.
0: And, and, and when you're in that, it's from a, a, I would say a non-material base where you're, um, you know, literally profits over people. I know that's a slogan that we use many times in the movement. Um, it. It becomes highly uh, reactionary in so many ways. I'd say a, a grand example from that. So uh, as a participant of uh, the uh, uprising in town here this summer, uh, last summer, um, I you know just seeing from that context, uh, I think a, one of the best examples of that. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, prior to the uh, Breonna Taylor uh, indictment announcement uh, with, the, with the cops, uh, many businesses uh, boarded up their store. Uh, one in particular uh, wasn't even. It was a. It was a Target. We're talking at least seven to ten miles from where the uh, epicenter of many of the uh, marches and protests uh, were occurring. But I think is a um, very stark um, sort of uh, perspective that uh, you know the the, the overreactionary. And very much, uh, you know, just, you know, it's a hyper reaction in many ways. Uh, These (laughs) persons truly believe that persons were going to march, you know, seven to ten miles away from their homes and I'm sorry, away from the the epicenter and, you know, uh, attack. A department store.
1: Yeah, because so. that's that shows you where the priorities are in the society. Now, another element of policing is to suppress dissent. Yes. Now, you can again see the disparities even there. Mm-hmm. Um, you can use the contemporary example. Certain types of dissent are okay. Yes. Others aren't. Mm-hmm. We saw clearly that in spite of all the warnings... And the Trump and his cult followings refusal to recognize the results of the past election.
0: They were unashamed about this. As yeah. Well. I mean, they were pretty, they were pretty upfront about Signaling
1: it. that they, they were do. going to be enraged and they were going to kill people and wreak all kinds of havoc. The powers that be pretty much dismissed it. A dismissal that as you said, that they would not be allowed with any other types of dissent. So it depends on the types of dissent. And I raise that because in looking at this historically, we can look at how the police are used to suppress union organizing historically. Mm-hmm. The police and the Klan are, have been known to collaborate to suppress strikes. I want
0: to say a couple of years ago when <laughs> this was off, overlooked, the uh, in the FBI have which um, those of us in social justice and progressive movements are um, you know no kin of ours but they did release a report um, talking about the high level of infiltration of white supremacists in the police forces all across this country Mm -hmm. Um, and if I'm listening to kind of some of the stuff you laid out prior uh, to this um, it's because it just you know It's like key to lock. You know, they're very much, uh, they're, they're, uh, they have, they, you know, have some similar purposes, like, you know, going back to their original purpose.
1: Their original purpose.
0: To, you know, suppress. uh,
1: Slave resistance and to retrieve the slave owner's property. And then we fast forward to the 20th century and, you know, after uh, the glorious anti-slavery struggle. And then we come into the 20th century, we see the uh, r- emergence of the civil human rights movement. And when you look at that historically, you see where all of those demonstrations and marches uh, faced the most brutal yeah. repression. You wanna talk from who? Reactionary. <laughs> I mean, we're talking,
0: we're talking um, in this, you know, I'll give the warning <laughs> of, you know, the our esteemed listeners who are familiar with what they did. Uh, we're talking, we're talking high-powered fire hoses for yes. uh, school children and, uh, you know, um, billy clubs and, and horse tra- uh, trampling of, yeah. of uh, elderly uh, church-going women and, you know. John
1: Lewis's head was cracked. Yeah. It, yeah. Uh,
0: he almost lost his life on, and it, well, I think, it, knowing his story, on several occasions, um, one of our, uh um, uh dear friends, uh Ivor Gruper, if he's listening right now, shout out to him. I mm-hmm. uh, was a part of that struggle and uh you know was was physically harmed yes. in, that, in that movement. You know,
1: and with the law. emergence, shows you how this stuff comes around of the Black Panther Party, we faced unprecedented police repression orchestrated by the highest security forces in the country the fbi we were always constantly harassed by the police uh, part of that was because you know we made it known to them that unlike previous struggles we were going to defend ourselves and of course that made them even matter um you know we can debate uh, that that strategy but that's what it was Unlike the pacifists, who had a legitimate strategy, uh, but we weren't pacifists, and if you shoot at us, we're going to shoot at you back. We're going to resist. So, quite naturally, uh, we got the full brunt of the oppression to the degree that they infiltrated the organization to destroy us. uh, Where they couldn't do it that way, they... um, you know, just shot you down in the street, shot up our offices. I know in Philadelphia, uh, a lot of the, the events we were doing, we would get harassed, police would show up. Well, to-
0: they're so reactionary. I mean, they they um, come down with an iron fist on uh, pacifist organizations, you know. Yes. A lot of the uh, anti-war demonstrations, yes. which the uh, uh, people who organized this radio station uh, forsooth. forsooth
1: Uh, Yes, yes. You know, many of them were were
0: a part of that.
1: Yeah, which shows you that it's as much as it is a white supremacist and racist element in this, it goes beyond that because part of the role of the police is to suppress any kind of dissent that they feel highly threatens the powers that be. And so we have this continuous history of this that's only gotten worse in the twenty first century, uh which precipitated the rise of the of the uh, Black Lives Matter movement and uh, I think after the Ferguson uh episode uh, in yeah. twenty thirteen it was.
0: Yeah, I mean I had I had a first hand of, uh, yes Ferguson was around uh 2013, 2014. Um I had personal upfront experience. Um did not do as much um, you know was was a part of organizing with the uh, local forces uh, during that. And that really what uh, got me, uh, you know, sort of viewing this as a lifelong struggle was, uh, you know, Ferguson uh, pretty much, uh, you know, grabbed a hold of me. But, um, you know, and I say, and this is to perhaps a lot of people listening right now, um, you know, the uh, the current uprising um, surrounding the Breonna Taylor mm-hmm. case, Um, It very much uh, grabbed me. I saw firsthand how the the lengths that uh, police were willing to go uh, to suppress, uh, you know, organic, legitimate um, protesting of, you know, these uh, these social control overreaches. And um, I mean, just, you know, some nights uh, it got it got pretty bad. To see, and I think for many uh, people in this town, this was our first. Uh, it was a uh, upfront education yes. in, in in how deep those depths go. Yeah. Um, so. So it's uh, a
1: complicated. It's,
0: it's a very complicated um, situation. And, uh, well, you know, some people have thought of many different ways here, and we we will, throughout, you know, doing this show and uh, piecing things together, we will continue to analyze talk about um, moments in history yes because it's very important but just uh, we got about 10 or so minutes left here Mm -hmm. I would like to touch on just you know so we're here we say that this is a uh, grave overreach Um, citizens many of them black brown brothers and sisters of the disabled community economically depressed persons are uh, highly subjugated by this uh, system of policing of social control so uh, some of us have sought to find a remedy to that one analysis has been and which came out of uh, some of the concessions of and once again I'm making the assumption that if if you're listening you're familiar with uh, some of this so I won't uh, Toggle too long on that. So from there, uh, we, you know, and some persons, uh, uh, shout out to uh, Keturah Heron of ACLU work uh, put together, you know, with other folk and uh, got it past Brianna's Law, uh, the ending of no knocks. Um, Mm -hmm. As I understand, uh, uh, the state of Virginia statewide has adopted that policy of no knock warrants. Um, so, from a, a political advocacy uh, standpoint and a, a lobbying standpoint, was able to get some legislation passed mm-hmm. uh, to reform this. But in particular, one of the stated sort of uh, remedies to this ill of uh, over-policing, of, of a citizenry, uh, was to form a uh, citizen review board. Now... Um, Throughout this struggle, we have had in this town, as a near lifelong resident of it, we have had various forms of uh, citizen review. One in particular was uh, started up and spearheaded by the Kentucky Alliance right prior to the uh, city-county merger that sought to, in essence, citizen review is looking at cases of police misconduct giving uh, an analysis um uh, this is um these are citizens this are so non-affiliated with the police uh appointed typically they were appointed by the mayor's office and they uh look at cases of police misconduct and try to see you know from a citizen standpoint you know what the redress should be so as it stood before and we can touch on a little bit uh the present board that was recently passed, um, you know, gives uh, recommendations of what what those redress should be. As of right now, the police, Metro, uh, LMPD, Louisville Metro Police, they take those recommendations, and there is no sort of uh, follow up <laughs> or any sort of um, there, there is no uh, subpoena power beyond that to enact upon these recommendations that the citizenry and I think we're both in agreement here to give citizens uh, to engage them in the political processes and uh, have them have a say in how we are policed is uh, these are these are good things that we're talking about here but I'm very curious To see these things without any sort of uh, legal, fiduciary, or otherwise, you know, redress or uh, backing behind them, to me personally, they feel like merely paper tigers.
1: (laughs) Could I say this? Yes. Uh, Because you touched on a good point. And as.
0: Before you get into that point, my apologies, I would like to remind our listeners that you are listening to community control now this is a pilot episode my name is vincent gonzalez this is uh, michael t and i uh, would like to hear your uh, point here about um, you know as we currently stand with how do we redress these the concern of over policing in this uh community and abroad
1: now first of all i think most of us who have analyzed this whole question of uh, policing and police repression recognize we're going to have to look at alternative ways of maintaining social safety in the society, which ultimately means abolishing the current form of policing we have now. We've got to have other alternatives. Ultimately, we've got to abolish the police. But realistically, we know we can't do that immediately. And that's primarily because we have no other mechanism in most of these cities and municipalities to maintain any kind of social safety. So
0: do we just leave it as it lies?
1: Well, there there are there are several answers to that question. Some are saying, well, defund the police. Now, we feel as though as much as that has some merit can you,
0: can you put in a cuz i think the language sometimes gets a little lost do you mind kind of can we flesh out for a, uh, you know a minute or so
1: yes well you know it means different things to different people but i think we could uh, safely say that we need to redistribute the funds that are going to these police entities that are killing us and not even really solving crimes in our neighborhoods definitely not solving um, crimes, you know, in the federal or national level, uh, private uh, crimes that are being committed, uh, you know, all the crime that goes on in the political system, all the crime that goes on in the uh, private business suites, you know, where people are embezzling billions. I
0: mean, there's there's analysis, you know, we have termed, I guess to maybe uh, placate it to a degree, white-collar crime has a way greater uh, economic impact on uh, the citizenry abroad uh, internationally uh, than
1: yeah. Street, crime. Street crime. Yeah. So so that tells us, again, as, as, as radical forces, always trying to reach to the roots of things, that the mission isn't so much even about solving crime. It, again, goes back to protecting commercial private property and suppressing dissent. And we know that the mission should be creating and maintaining Social safety. So how do we do that? Do we defund the police, take the monies away from the police and redirect them other places and employ you know social services? I say some of that is good, but that's not necessarily going to solve the kinds of crimes that are happening in our communities that are affecting us more than anybody else what do we do so we our analysis and some other activists across the country uh, particularly in chicago and uh, california have come to the conclusion uh, that the black panther party came to in 1968 that we need to take control of the police system wherever it exists in each one of these cities Right? We can't make them disappear, just like we can't make crime disappear and all the social contradictions disappear, but we can struggle to gain control of the apparatus.
0: We got about uh, ten, a little bit out of 10 minutes to play with here. I, I did want to uh, sort of uh, in summation with um, what do you see as, because many of uh, our dear listeners out there um, are advocates of the defund the police movement. What do you see as the perhaps uh, critical concern with that?
1: Well, the critical concern is the concern you hear coming from the community itself. As much as I think many people recognize the importance of turning over much of what the police are handling right now, you know, cases that, you know, really in the social and psychological realm, dealing with people with mental illnesses, drug addictions, these things should be turned over to other types of social agencies. And I think most people are for that. But but again, looking at it dialectically, people still know that there are antisocial and criminal acts going on in All communities. So, how do we deal with that? I mean, when when a person gets raped, or you know, child abuse goes on, or somebody breaks in your house, we can't call Ghostbusters. We have to have and take advantage of the police apparatus we have now until we can transform that. But just one more point, though. So we say that in this interim between what we have now and abolishing the police. Which is a long-term struggle. We've got to gain control of the police departments through democratically elected precinct by precinct, or however it's broken down into various cities. I think in Louisville it's a little different. I know in Philly, when we were waging this struggle back in the seventies, you know, we were, you know, um, you know, looking at it in terms of the precincts. But we've got to get the communities who want this to control the policing in their own area. There's some areas, some parts of the cities that are more affluent, maybe don't have as much crime or whatever, they may not want it. But it should be um, brought forth as an option for the people who want it and who need that. And it has to be democratically elected boards, not one person, you know, controlling it. We're now talking about recommendations, you know, where we keep the present system and then have a community council that uh, reviews the evidence after they've killed you and locked you up, and then they make recommendations to the people in power. We're talking about empowering the people. In
0: a, in a, in a fiduciary and um, legal way, making sure that, you know, there are some consequences to this. So many people, you know, like I said, many of our listeners we we are not uh ignorant to this fact that uh many uh people will see, you know, well we'll defund it, we'll put it in social programs and uh, you know, we still have a uh you know, it's it's when we say D, the the prefix of uh I, I say I use the analogy, you know, just like Decaffeinated coffee. Um, <laughs> it's still, uh, it's still coffee. It has exactly. It is not. It's not uncaffeinated. It's yeah, has some caffeine in it.
1: And just more just diversity on the police force. Yeah, Getting yeah. black policemen uh, doesn't solve the problem.
0: Here's the contradiction with that. We've had, as a uh, town in particular, I've seen we've had reductions in police budgets in many uh, because you know we are very much these social. Uh, And and many of these modern urban spaces are similarly ran uh, because of that shared history. We've had moments where the police budget was reduced, you know, defunding right there. And, you know, many, uh, there was, uh, you know, of course, the police force, the FOPs of these towns, uh, this town in particular, and many citizens said that, well, you know, we, we had this uh, reduction in the police budget and, you know, either, you know, violent crime went up or many of these other things went up. So we can't we can't do that, you know, and, and you know, in many cases from the defunding effort, uh, the uh, police budget was uh, increased prior to the defunding. So, um, you know, many times and, and as, I, as I personally see it, uh, perhaps defunding uh can be just a Band-Aid on this, um, you know, very much deep, deep wound yes. of, uh, of over-policing uh, in this
1: And, and I think world. that's why the community control is gaining traction, because people are looking at the various alternatives and the options, and they see, well, that's not really solving the problem. So we- and everything boils down to who is in control. Yeah.
0: So we have a few minutes here. So when we say, uh, if we could bullet point, man, when we're talking about, and this is community control now, man, this is, uh, I'm not going to say meat and potatoes because I'm trying to come from an <laughs> anti species lens. But, um, well, you know, potato and beans of uh, what we're saying here. We are talking about the ability of a citizenry to hire and fire every police officer in this town, okay? All police misconduct concerns have the ability uh, to be subpoenaed. So when we subpoena, we have, um, there's some, you know, legal, uh, you know, channels that go through that. Uh, But I think, in essence, we're saying that this uh, i see it as the as the ultimate vote of no confidence with saying that you know due to your your carrying out uh, exactly. this violent history sure yeah, yeah. you, you have lost the right
1: exactly
0: to, uh, independently and and without you know any sort of citizenry say you have lost that right to police yourselves is just kind of how yeah, you're going Yeah, cuz
1: they have it I mean how well has that worked out yeah. they're policing themselves yeah. and that's the problem in why we even have this program with so many of these efforts to just have review boards because they have no power they can't even negotiate police contracts which,
0: which can we say is unfortunate because you know as it's you know going back to the social contract we should be able to have a degree of you know checks and balances where we put forth things a, a level of trust and, and we have lost that due to the reactionary nature of these things and and just the complete violent overreach that we've seen.
1: Throughout yeah. And it's when different. we say this this doesn't mean that you know under community control that the police would have no involvement in this but the ultimate power would lie with the people who are the victims of police repression and who are supposed to be served by the police. See, the police don't set, are not set up to serve them. They're public servants. They're serving us. So we're it. their employers. So,
0: Kitty Caboodle, this is why we do what we're doing here. And um, we're hoping, man, through these uh, radio channels, this is 106.5 FM, WFMP, forward radio, we are hoping that we uh, can uh, just get a hold of the masses, and galvanize people towards this uh, solution that we seek. So my name's uh, Vincent Gonzalez, this is Michael T., and uh, we appreciate y'all.